what I really mean by taking responsibility is I mean taking responsibility for our suffering, meaning to discover how and where you have power to end your suffering. We think in order to do that, we have to solve the external problem that has created it. And often that is the way we solve our suffering, but that is not always the way we do it. And that doesn't mean though we are powerless to solve our suffering just because we can't change the external circumstances that cause it. That was Dr. Alex Lickerman, and this is the Brendan Carr Podcast. Today, my guest is Dr. Alex Lickerman, author of The Undefeated Mind on the Science of Constructing an Indestructible Self and The Ten Worlds, The New Psychology of Happiness. In this episode, Alex and I have a great discussion about happiness, resilience, overcoming suffering, and Alex has all of these counterintuitive solutions that I was fortunate to read about in one of his books. And it's amazing that he also is a practitioner of this. He was formerly at the University of Chicago, where he was an assistant professor of medicine. He was eventually an assistant vice president for student health and counseling services. So very fitting for someone who has this amazing message of helping people through suffering. And Alex's perspective is also unique in that much of it was informed by his practice of Nichiren Buddhism, which he practiced through most of his adult life. He started it in medical school, but he actually left it after writing his first book. And he explains in this conversation why he left Nichiren Buddhism. So he'll talk about that. And if you want to understand how to take a situation that seems bad and turn it into something good, this conversation's for you. An outward piece of Nichiren Buddhism is the chant. That's right. Yeah. What is it about that that, that distinguishes it and that's, that's important to it? Yeah. The, uh, the practice of Nichiren Buddhism is uh, different from most forms of Buddhism that are known in the West, like Zen Buddhism, which are mostly, mostly focused on meditation. I think you could argue that chanting is a form of meditation. Mm-hmm. And in the scientific literature, it's, it's considered that. Um, but its goal is quite a bit different than traditional meditation, right? So traditional meditation has as its goal becoming mindful of oneself and in some traditions uh, to break through the, the veil of the illusion of self, to, to, to see the, the truth that the, the permanent self is an illusion. That is not the goal of chanting in Nichiren Buddhism. The goal of chanting in Nichiren Buddhism is to bring forth wisdom. Uh, it is not to sort of pierce the veil of illusion of the sense of self or any of that. It's, it really is to bring forth practical answers and solution to problems that you're facing in your life. And uh, the reason I stopped practicing Nichiren Buddhism was not because I found chanting to be ineffective. In fact, I found it to be very effective. And I can explain what I mean by that and, and how I found it effective. But the challenge I had was there are some foundational principles to Nichiren Buddhism, things like reincarnation and karma uh, that just are not uh, ultimately uh, supported by science nor therefore believable to me. And while I find the philosophy of sort of how to live one's life uh, as expounded by Nichiren Buddhism incredibly practical and useful, and I still live by that philosophy in many of its forms, um, I no longer really um, uh, practice Buddhism. I I still will chant sometimes, uh, but I found other practices that have the same effect. And I could talk about that that if you're interested in it, but uh, um, that's that's the story. Yeah, I think I think this is all very interesting. It's it's something that I find a lot living in Southern California is that a lot of people seem to um, ascribe to, to certain parts of Buddhism, and you you see statues of the Buddha everywhere in my town. 
um, see them all around. People have them at their homes and things. And it, it seems that there's, um, there's a sense of an interest, but maybe not all of the pieces of it. What, what, are, what was your journey like with this new evolution? Yeah. So interestingly enough, it was the, the experience of writing my first book, The Undefeated Mind, mm-hmm. that uh, got me to a place where I said, I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop practicing Buddhism in a formal way just because the underlying tenets I just did not believe and, and could not believe. And yet the practice worked for me. And, and if you read my first book, I, I describe what it was like when I first started practicing that somehow chanting uh, the phrase is nam myoho renge kyo over and over, uh, really brought a, a flurry of insights, uh, in my life that, that were astounding to me. That were these, you know, everybody has had this experience. It's not unique to people who practice Nichiren Buddhism where you're struggling to solve a problem. You can't, you're, you're, you're trying to find, you can't figure it out. And then something out of nowhere, some idea pops up and you're like, that's it. Hmm. It's, it's, it's called learning by insight. And in fact, in the in the psychological and neurological literature, this is a well-recognized phenomenon. And in fact, we've even studied to figure out what we can do to make it more likely to happen. And if you're interested, I could go through this because I wrote about this in my second book because I think it's really fascinating. Like how can we develop insight in a way that is really useful to us, that is that produces real wisdom that helps us solve real life problems? Because that's what I found chanting did for me. And so that's why I practice it for 23 years or so, because whenever I came across a life problem that I, I could not figure out how to solve, and I would I would chant about that problem, sort of with a determination to find the solution, invariably, it sometimes would be quick, it sometimes would take a while, but invariably, I would come to an insight that would provide me an answer that was wholly unexpected. It was not something that I ever would have necessarily reasoned through in a linear fashion, but just uh, often out from left field. And yet the moment I would recognize or, or suddenly become aware of this idea, this, this answer, uh, it had a ring of truth to it and, a, and, a, and an obviousness to it that could not be denied. And this happened to me over and over and over again. And so the, really, the reason I continued practicing Buddhism for as long as I did was because I was, one, it was so practically helpful to me, hmm. but also because I thought, well, if, if this is working, you know, is, is the explanation given by the Buddhists correct, even though it was very mystical and very much not scientific, which is hard for, I mean, I am at my core a scientist. So uh, and then what happened is that I started writing my second book, which is called The Ten Worlds, about how one becomes happy, truly happy. And I, I, I dove back into the literature, into the psychological and neurological literature, and discovered there is this whole body of work that in my mind explains why chanting works. And, and, I, and I can tell you about that if you're interested in it. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I, read, I read The Undefeated Mind, and, and uh, I, I found it tremendous with, with the insights and your stories of coming to, to these insights were, were amazing. So perhaps Thank we you. could start with um, just just a little bit about your, your story at the beginning of uh, medical school and, sure. and kind of going through a breakup, just so people have an example of where this chanting did come into play for you. Yeah. So uh, I, I had my first serious relationship my first year of medical school, which uh, was a challenge because I really was uh, struck head over heels in love with this uh, woman. And uh, things were very blissful, as they often are in first relationships and first great loves for about six to nine months. And then uh, things started to kind of go sour. And in our second year of medical school, ultimately, we ended up break. She broke up with me, and I was just devastated. And, and I absolutely, uh, in retrospect, went spiraling into a clinical depression. Uh, and had anyone said to me at the time, 
you know, hey, Alex, you're you're kind of depressed. You should go see somebody. I would have done it. It just literally the thought never occurred to me. I just thought, wow, I'm really depressed. And uh, I had trouble sleeping. I had trouble studying. I had trouble concentrating and focusing. Uh, and she was the woman who introduced me to Nichiren Buddhism. And so I had been practicing uh, for a very short while when this happened. And in Nichiren Buddhism, often when you're struggling with a problem that's making you suffer, as this problem was making me suffer, uh, you're encouraged to go get guidance from a, 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 the lay organization. There's a lot of people there who will help folks who are less experienced in the practice than they are uh, to help them get guidance about how do I use the Buddhist practice to solve my problem, in this case, the problem of my suffering from having been uh, left by my girlfriend who I was in love with. And I thought, okay, that's that's a that's a good idea. And I got some guidance. And um, the guidance was basically that um, the suffering I was experiencing was my responsibility. It was not caused, I was told, by the fact that my girlfriend left me, but by caused by something in me. And intellectually, I thought, well, that, that makes sense. I, I'm not exactly sure how that would be the case because my thinking was, well, I, I was in love with her. She was no longer in love with me. We weren't going to be together. And how was I ever going to be happy again? That's what it felt like to me. So I began to chant about my suffering. I, I stopped chanting about getting her back. And I began to chant simply to be relieved of my suffering because I, I was really in it. I was, I was in pretty bad shape. And uh, after a, a long period of time, um, one morning, I had an insight. And it was just as I described earlier, it was this sudden unexpected idea that was in the center of my attention that I literally had not thought of until that moment. Uh, and as I thought about it and, and the way it, it, it appeared in my consciousness was not just an intellectual idea like maybe this is it. I suddenly knew beyond a shadow of a doubt the reason that I was suffering when my girlfriend left me was not because uh, I needed her to love me. That was a delusion. It was because I did not feel um, loved myself. I did not love myself. I did not believe that I could be happy without her. Mm. And what I saw in that moment was very simply that that just wasn't true, that I didn't need her to be happy. I don't know why or how, but I suddenly, I had the thought and with that thought came a deep-seated belief that I did not need her to be happy. And yet also that I had all my life not only uh, put you know, my hopes for happiness uh, in, in this relationship with her, but all my life and all my relationships, I realized just how much I needed to be liked in order to be happy and how much of my energy and time and the way I interacted with people and the relationships I created was designed to get people to like me so that I... Uh, was happy that that I needed that and and what happened to my great astonishment when I had this realization even though I did not know what happened at that time I actually only realized this in retrospect three months later was that I lost my need to be liked and I and I freed myself from the belief that I needed my my former girlfriend to love me to be happy the only so so what happened in that moment literally I stopped suffering I I literally all the pain and 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 suffering I was experiencing the hands of having been left by this woman literally just stopped and I was really quite astounded by it. But I really didn't know what had happened until three months later when my best friend came to me and said, you know, Alex, you've been treating all of our friends or a lot of our friends uh, pretty poorly. You're kind of being a jerk to them. And, mm -hmm. and my first reaction was to get very defensive and say, well, that's not true. And then I paused and I thought about it and I realized, you know, he's right. I had suddenly become very disinterested in a lot of our friends and I finally realized what had happened. And what had happened was these were people for whom or with whom, to be honest, I had no real connection to, but 
anyone who would enter my life, uh, I would use them unconsciously, but I would use them uh, uh, to buoy my self-esteem, to get them to like me, to think of me in a certain way. It was very manipulative. And I didn't know, really know I was doing it, but it was, it was what sustained my own sense of, of self-esteem and sense of self-love when all these people thought of me in a certain way and I believed they thought of me in a certain way. And what happened when I had this insight was that I stopped needing that. And so without realizing it, I started pulling away from these people with whom I didn't have anything really in common other than the fact that I was using their friendship to make myself feel good about myself. And it had just happened naturally without my even noticing. And to me, that was real proof that I had genuinely changed. And, and since that time, this is now about 30 years ago, um, my need to be liked, I would not say that it has entirely gone away because we all want people to like us. I will say this. It's changed from being a need to a want. I can tolerate being disliked and not – it doesn't obsess me. It doesn't you know, trap me. It doesn't um, – it doesn't prevent me from being happy. I can let go of it when I discover someone doesn't like me or I think that they're not liking me. It no longer has any hold on me. Wow. Uh, and that was a pretty – I mean to happen in a moment uh, was a pretty profound experience. And, and my thinking about this was that all the suffering that I experienced up to the moment where I had this insight was what was necessary to get me to that insight. That and the attitude I took while chanting, which was that I am responsible for my suffering. And if there's some belief in me that is bringing me to this point, that's the belief that I have to, I have to break through. And that's what it ended up being. And uh, that's one, you know, I wrote about that example in the 10 world, uh, sorry, in uh, the undefeated mind. Um, it's just one example among many, many, many examples through the years where when I was facing an obstacle that was making me suffer, invariably the suffering stemmed not just from what the external obstacle, but from the belief that it was stirring up in me that ended up being a delusion. And it was in the act of suddenly truly recognizing that belief is a delusion <clears throat> that somehow freed me from it. And, and it transformed not only just my suffering, but the external situation as well. Because now, so I broke up, you know, my girlfriend had broken up with me. And it's not that I didn't care, but I was no longer suffering over it. I was actually able to finally move on. And, um, and that's what I did. Wow. This seems such a valuable insight to come to in a flash. Like I know, I know personally, I, know I, I want to be self-aware and I, I journal and I meditate and reflect on things, but, but to come to an, a, like that, it, it seems so valuable. Why, why the change? Why the evolution in your practice? So uh, for the research I did for my second book, The Ten Worlds, I, I was very interested to understand. Um, I always had felt that from the day I began practicing when I was 22, uh, that there had to be some type of scientific explanation, right? The, the Buddhist explanation is that by chanting nam myoho renge kyo we're chanting the, the mystic law, which is the fundamental mystic truth of the universe. And, and I just really never bought that. I, it's just not the way I think. And so I thought there had to be some psychological, even neurological explanation for why the, uh, by chanting, I just had this, this, you know, this, conglomeration of insights that were so profound and deep and, and life-changing that it couldn't have been a coincidence. The chanting had to be involved. Well, uh, in between the time when I wrote my first book and wrote my second book, uh, there were some studies that, that uh, came out that sort of developed a, a theory. And the theory is something called transient hypofrontality. Mm. It's a big mouthful, right? But here's the idea that uh, we know, for example, that the brain consumes about 40% um, of the body's energy. The, you know, thinking and all the brain's process is an incredibly energy-intensive uh, uh, organ. 
And uh, the, the theory here is that, uh, that different parts of the brain have different functions. We've known that for decades. And they compete for energy. And so that when one part of the brain needs to be activated in order to meet the demands of, of homeostasis and survival and all those things, other parts of the brain sort of shut down a little bit. And so one of the theories here is that there are things that cause transient hypofrontality, meaning the frontal lobe where higher order executive function is housed. It's, it's the part of us that is self-aware. It's the part of us that's sort of like the conductor. It's, it's, try, it's the conscious part of us that um, puts the reins on our impulses and tries to direct what we do in a conscious way. It has a very linear thought process, a very energy intensive thought process. It requires a lot of energy to engage it. And there are times when we do things where that part of the brain kind of downregulates. It just, it doesn't do a lot. Uh, so for example, um, when you're doing anything out of habit, which is actually 80% of our behavior is, is uh, habit driven, meaning there is a environmental stimulus, we have an automatic reaction and then some reward. So for example, people mostly understand this. When you get into a car, most of us will reach over and put on our seatbelt without even thinking. It's not – we're not actually consciously paying attention with our frontal lobes to the fact that we need to grab that seatbelt. What's happened is through years of repetition where we are paying attention, a different part of the brain, a lower part of the brain takes over uh, that action. So it's unconscious, meaning we're not quite paying attention to the fact we're doing it. I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but I have where you, know, you drive home the same way every day and then one day you realize, oh, yeah, I have to stop off somewhere. But you get distracted by something, maybe a song or you're talking on your cell phone, whatever, and you realize – You've driven home mm -hmm. when you meant to drive and stop off somewhere because despite the fact this is a complex series of behaviors to drive a car home, it's automatic. It's actually it is, the behavior is not coming from the frontal lobe. It's coming from a different part of the brain, the, the part of the brain that, that guides or, or drives habitual behavior. And the reason we think this evolved is because it's a very low energy requiring uh, activity. Even complex habitual behaviors do not require a lot of mental focus, a lot of energy. It doesn't require a lot of energy. Okay. So that is background. What we've learned is, you know, the difference between problem solving through linear uh, uh, attention, through specifically trying, you know, solve a problem uh, consciously, and then problem solving through insight. And problem solving through insight, we have identified, is really done at an unconscious level. Our unconscious minds our unconscious brains, the part of our brains that make up the, that part of our minds, um, have incredible processing power. They, the, the, that part of our minds can process uh, multiple reams of data in parallel. It does not have to think mm. uh, linearly. Our conscious minds think linearly. Now, we think we can multitask. That's actually an illusion. When people are multitasking, they're actually switching back and forth between a whole bunch of activities. But you're really, you, with your conscious mind, you could actually only focus on one thing at a time. And conscious problem solving is incredibly powerful for some types of problems, you know, like for, for math problems or for counting or, or things like that. Very, very powerful. Um, but it's not very creative. Creativity seems to be enhanced when we allow our mind to wander. Mind wandering, what, that, what we are learning that does is it, it causes transient hyperfrontality, which quiets the linear executive conscious part of our minds and allows unconscious processing to kind of take over. It's like daydreaming a little bit. Uh, and we all have experienced this, right? I, I will challenge you or anyone listening now to think about any problem you've had and you hit a brick wall and maybe it's like you're trying to write something or you're trying to solve a problem. You just can't figure out what it is. And then one day, suddenly, when you're not even thinking about the problem, bang, there's this mm -hmm. idea in front of you. 
this new insight that you never had thought of before, but you're like, you get incredibly excited. It's this eureka moment because it's the answer. And it's thinking about it in an entirely different way that your conscious mind had never, you know, it is plotting linear, linear, linear way of thinking had never, was never going to come across. So what we're figuring out is that this is the unconscious mind doing its processing underneath that suddenly an answer pops up. And what we've discovered is there, there are activities that promote mind wandering and that actually help the unconscious mind to uh, come to an intuitive, unexpected answer. And these types of activities are things like exercise. Uh, you, you know, you've heard the the, uh, the, uh, the old cliche that, you know, you're in the shower, you got all these great ideas because yeah. low intensity activity where your your mind is wandering, you're thinking about things, you're not directing it necessarily with your conscious mind it's, and, and actively seeking for an answer. It, it actually increases activity in the parts of the brain that seem to be connected to unconscious processing. And, and really what we're learning is our unconscious minds are much more creative, maybe even smarter in some ways than our conscious minds. And studies have shown that, for example, when you're trying to solve a problem, if you get away from the problem and you do a low uh, intensity physical something that promotes mind wandering, you are much more likely to come up with an intuitive solution than if you don't do that during the break. They've actually done studies that show this, okay? Well, it turns out chanting is one of those things wow. that has been studied that seems to promote mind wandering and transient hypofrontality. And so, I, you know, by no means uh, is this a, uh, do I have proof that this is the mechanism? But the pieces are starting to come together for me because I'll tell you, the other things that I have found that have produced the same exact result as chanting include things like exercise, showering, uh, like when I get on a Stairmaster and I exercise, I come up with some of my most creative, unexpected ideas. It mm. just promotes insight. And then there's one more piece to this. The other piece to this is that we direct our unconscious minds with our conscious minds all the time, right? We, we have a problem we're trying to solve. We can't get in. We can't figure it out. And we say, right, I'm going to get away from this. I'm just I'm going to let myself percolate on it, right? Mm -hmm. Well, there's evidence to suggest what's actually happening when we're percolating on it is that we are we – are, our attention wanders, our mind begins to wander, but our unconscious minds are still working on this problem. And often we'll come up with a solution if we give it a chance to do that. And we take the, the controlling part of our minds, the conscious part, away from the problem. So I write a lot about this in the last chapter of The Ten Worlds, and I cite a lot of the science. Um, but, but that's actually what I think is happening. And so when I, when I sort of put all this together from my read on the literature, the, the scientific literature, it suddenly occurred to me that I've been doing this all this time without chanting, you know, exercising, you know, like when I would go jogging or on a Stairmaster, that type of thing. And I, I think for me, the, the key component to this is that when you have a problem, a life problem that you're trying to solve, like a relationship issue or, or a decision you have to make or really almost any problem whatsoever, it is good to apply your conscious reasoning to this to try to, you know, solve the problem in a linear way. But when everything you try fails, what most of us do is we go back to the first thing we try, thinking, well, maybe this will still work. We run, out, you know, we run out of ideas, right? But if instead you say to yourself, all right, I am going to take full and complete responsibility for solving this problem, meaning I believe somewhere in my life, somewhere in my head, there is an answer to this problem that I am not seeing right now. Maybe because I don't want to see it, because it's a scary answer, or I'm just not seeing it. And then you, you do something that induces transient hypofrontality, mind-wandering activities, uh, but with sort of a conscious determination that you're going to find a solution to your problem, I will tell you that more times than I think coincidence can explain, that has worked for me. 
And mm. so I still will chant. I still will do that when I struggle with problems or I will get on a Stairmaster uh, with a determination that, and I think this is key. This is now, I don't have science to back this up, any research, but I, this is my experience. When you assume that responsibility, you stop pointing the finger out outside of yourself. You stop assigning blame to others and say, the problem is you, sir, not me, right? But the answer, you know, a really wise Buddhist friend of mine once said to me, if, if you're suffering, it's your problem to solve. And whatever anyone else may be doing to you, however you may, be feel, however you may feel you are being treated unjustly, if you are suffering, it's your problem to solve. And if you approach it with that attitude, you say, okay, I can't change anyone else's behavior. I can't change anyone else's attitude. I have to figure out something about me to change. I believe that is the first step to making sure that when the answer pops out of your unconscious mind, it's the answer that will solve the problem. Mm. Yeah, this, this is tremendous, too. The, you use the phrase transient hypofrontality, which I think of uh, a flow state that you talk about in extreme sports and things like that. And, sure, and people yeah. come to these amazingly yep. creative ways to solve a physical problem when they're airborne because right. they're in this flow state. So I, I see this I see this as being a very, very interesting and, like you said, a, a probable explanation. Do you find that still your ideas from before are are holding up or are you, are you beginning to kind of peel away at, at, at the whole process? Yeah, no, they hold up because, you know, I was very careful in that book uh, to, to be very explicit about what I believed and what I didn't believe. And I was very, you know, the, the, the principles I talked about, actually, I was very careful to make sure they were based on modern science. So even though I yes. talk in the introduction about my wondering, what is the, what is going on with this chanting thing? I sort of just left that question unanswered because at the time I wrote it, I didn't have an answer. And, and my, it, there was a very specific part page on that book where I say, you know, uh, it's working, but I, I'm longing for a, a scientific explanation, not a parascientific explanation, not a supernatural explanation, because I never believed that this was working because of something supernatural. So I was very careful to make sure that the ideas I put into that book had a basis in science, there were things that someone, whether they have any interest in Buddhism or not, could put into practice in their own lives. So no, I, I stand by that work. I think it's um, it's helped me. It mm -hmm. certainly helped me to become more resilient. Yes, yes. Resilience being a big thing and, and a word that you've been coming back to in this discussion and in your previous book is responsibility. Let's break that down. What is that link between responsibility and resilience? There's a couple of links. So the first link is that uh, there is evidence that when you are acting as a moral agent, meaning mm -hmm. that uh, you are doing something you think is right and you believe it to be right, that that actually makes you more resilient. There's, there's some fascinating studies that I wrote about in the first book about that. And, and the idea of being a moral agent is uh, intimately tied to the notion that you, you can only be a moral agent if you are responsible for your actions, right? So you care to do the right thing, meaning it is, it is up to you to do it. That is what I mean by a sort of a sense of responsibility. Uh, that will make you more resilient. The other way I mean that, though, is, is, as I was just talking about a minute ago, taking responsibility for your own suffering. I mean, think about this. How many times when you are in pain and uh, also suffering because of something that has been done to you by an outside force, an outside person or a disease, something that you know doesn't have a conscious and malicious intent toward you but nevertheless is causing you to suffer, that you blame those external forces and you abdicate a sense of power and responsibility for what's going to happen. Uh, you know, and, and by that I mean – not necessarily whether you'll be cured from your disease or not, or you'll be, uh, 
you know, find another job because you were fired, but from the suffering that those experiences are bringing you. And so what I really mean by taking responsibility is I mean taking responsibility for our suffering, meaning to discover how and where you have power to end your suffering. We think in order to do that, we have to solve the external problem that has created it. And often that is the way we solve our suffering, but that is not always the way we do it. And that doesn't mean though we are powerless to solve our suffering just because we can't change the external circumstances that cause it. And this is, uh, I talk more about this in my second book, but, but that's, you know, that notion of being responsible for your life in every way, in the, in the most important way, which is whether you are happy or not. That is the attitude that makes it possible for you to suffer in the most oppressive of circumstances. And uh, it's not an easy lesson to learn. And I often, I, I keep having to relearn it myself. So I'm very aware of how challenging <laughs> it is. But whenever I finally remember it and come back to it, that is when I am able to take the first step out of really solving problems that are making me suffer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I think that's, like you said, a very, very tough one to learn, a very, very hard thing to swallow. And I, I remember an experience I had in my own life. Uh, I had an issue with a contract that I was under. And um and I, I believe very firmly that I understood my contract and how it was supposed to go. And I, I, for a long time, I kept fighting the contract and fighting the legal battle. And it took me probably months before I came to a point where I realized that the, the frustration that I'm feeling around this is something that's in me, whether or not I win or lose the legal aspect of it. But it was, it was like you said, it was a form of suffering to right. get to that point. Um, right. But so valuable now. I'm so grateful I did. Uh, right. But not, not fun along the way. No. <laughs> so how can we take action then to, to be in that, that more active role? How can we move into that quickly? Because it's, it's not natural. It's not comfortable. I, I remember in that moment being obsessed with the minutia of my legal situation. Right. Much more so right. than taking a hard look at myself. Yeah. Um, that's a hard one. Uh, I do think a regular practice of mindfulness is useful that way, meaning mm-hmm. – if you develop a habit where you do something every day to pause and take a step back from the minutia of your life and ask yourself, are you living in the way you want? Are you taking responsibility for uh, the, the experiences you're having? I mean, I don't mean that, by the way, that we're in control of everything that happens to us by any means, right? I mean, things happen all the time we have no control over. Uh, and, and you can't also just decide to feel one way or another way. We're not in control of our emotions either. Mm-hmm. Um, but we are, we are, we, we have some ability to, to control our attitude. Some, it's not easy, right? Cause you can get, 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 you know, pulled away. The winds of, of emotion can just whip you away and you can be completely immersed in them and not be able to step back and see. But I do believe and have found that if I have some type of regular practice where I, I pause and spend some amount of specific time dedicated to examining my thinking, and ask, asking myself, you know, am I having right thinking here? Am I taking responsibility for myself? If I'm, if I'm, you know, awash in anger at my wife or my son, you know, and, and I'm being pulled away by that, I, I often say to myself, you know, anger in that context for me is very painful. I don't like being angry at my wife or my son. Uh, but if in that moment I can pause and say, okay, I'm angry, they're doing something, I'm being, I'm being uh, you know, taken away by the, the, the momentary emotion here, let me just pause, right, and ask myself, what am I really angry about? And am I taking responsibility for, uh, you know what, actually, a better way to explain this is through a metaphor. So imagine mm-hmm. you're watching a movie, right? We all watch movies. Yeah. And you're, the movie's great. And it's, uh, you're, you're sitting on your couch and you're completely in the moment of the movie. 
and you are feeling what the filmmakers want you to feel and you care what happens to the characters and, and what's happening is you lose the sense of the truth, which is that this is, you're watching a two-dimensional image of people who never actually – characters never actually existed uh, and, and you're sitting in your living room watching this movie. You, you forget that. You lose yourself in the movie, right? And, and you're completely emotionally engaged in the movie and you're going to feel what the movie wants you to feel. Until the person sitting next to you elbows you in the shoulders, hey, pass the popcorn. <laughs> and you go, oh, uh, right. And you suddenly remember, it's literally remembering you're sitting in your living room watching a story about people who never existed. Mm-hmm. And it is the difference between being completely immersed in an, in an emotion and in a moment and being carried along by whatever or carried away by whatever emotion has got you in its grip, you know, and often those negative emotions, suffering, anger, jealousy, greed, whatever. And taking a step back and watching yourself in that situation, right? It's it's a it's a it's a flip of a switch. It's the smallest uh, uh, difference, but it's it's everything. And it, and and most people have had this experience, whether or not they consciously recognize that's what, what what's happened, where they're they're immersed in an experience in one moment, and the next moment they're actually to some degree watching themselves have the experience. It's the difference conceptually between saying I am suffering, or I, let me say this differently: I am anxious and. I am feeling anxiety, right? In the first sentence, you're saying mm. anxiety is completely en- enveloping me, overwhelming me. I, can, I, I am completely ruled by this anxiety. The second example is like I am here and there is anxiety sitting next to me. And I am experiencing this anxiety, but that anxiety is not me and mm. is not taking me over. It turns out that this technique is something that we use uh, very powerfully to help people manage really unpleasant emotions. And, uh, and I think – Really, it's practice. It's practice becoming the master of your emotions, but by which I mean you don't master your emotions doing what most people do, which is try to suppress them. All that does is make them more difficult to control. Uh, you, you master your emotions by fully and completely embracing and accepting them, even the unpleasant ones. This is, for example, how we treat people uh, who have panic attacks. We, we teach them not to, to fear panic, not to run from the fear, but to accept it, to embrace it, to say to that fear, bring it on. Because <laughs> when you do that, when you do that, a couple of things happen. One, paradoxically and interestingly, for many people, the intensity of that emotion that you've been running from, it diminishes. That's not the intent though. The intent is not to get rid of the feeling. It is to feel, to tell yourself, to recognize you're strong enough to feel it. Hmm. Because then what happens is when you embrace it, it stops controlling you. It stops driving you to do whatever you feel you need to do to get rid of it. And actually you realize I can, I can manage this anxiety in the service of whatever goal I have or, or, or you know, whatever. And that I think is the way uh, to become mindful enough so that you are not carried off by your negative emotions, but actually can take responsibility for them and for your suffering and then begin to say, okay, why am I suffering like this? What is the, what is the deluded belief I have that is being stirred up here that is making me suffer in response to this person or this event? Um, I think it really comes you know, from, from practice of being mindful of one's own reactions and of accepting one's own emotions, which as a society I think we suck at. <laughs> I, I would agree. And uh, another thing that I, I know I can suck at sometimes is the self-belief piece that you're hitting on here, the sense that I am strong enough to handle this yes. And, yes. and kind of pinning that down. How, yeah. how can people overcome self-doubt a bit? And, and as you said, to see, see self-doubt as an enemy rather than yeah. a flaw. Well, if by self-doubt you mean the, the doubt that you can withstand the unpleasant emotions that your mm. life keeps stirring up in you, is that what you mean? Yeah. Yeah. I think there's only one way. I think it's practice. 
Hmm. Uh, you know, Olympic athletes do not are not born having a higher pain tolerance than everyone around them. I mean, there there is definitely a genetic component to your pain tolerance, uh, but they achieve an unbelievable ability to to tolerate pain that non-athletes cannot tolerate through practice. They just literally do it again and again and again. Think of you know a weightlifter, right? The pain that you feel when you're lifting weights, that is real pain. It is not fun, mm-hmm. but weightlifters aim for that, right? Because they're so determined to grow. So if everybody sort of looked at their the emotions they feel that they're traditionally considered to be negative, right? The biggest one is probably anxiety, followed quickly by depression. And instead of running from those feelings, uh, actually learn to embrace them. Uh, well, I'll give an example of what I mean. So I had a friend who had to do an MRI for some reason. His doctor ordered an MRI. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you've ever had an MRI or any one of your listeners have, but MRIs, um, traditional MRIs, it's like being put into a coffin. Yeah. The, the area that you're in is so tight. Even people who don't suffer from claustrophobia will often have trouble with this. And my friend was no exception. In fact, he told me uh, he was very worried because he had an MRI set up for the, the next week, but he tried and failed to complete it five times. Ooh. This was despite being given a sedative. He just was so panicked when he got into that machine, he could not stay in it. And he was distraught because he said his doctor said, you have to have this, and he just didn't know what to do. This is before, by the way, the advent of open MRIs where you didn't have to be in a coffin space. So I said to him, here's a suggestion. When you get into the MRI suite and you get into the MRI machine, you look at that anxiety as if it were a separate person from you. And instead of running from it and doing everything you can to get rid of it, because the only way you can get rid of it is to get out of the MRI, which is what you don't want to do, right? You have a goal, which is to stay in the MRI and you have a feeling, the anxiety that is driving you to get out of the MRI, change your goal. Your goal should not be to get rid of the anxiety. Your goal should be to feel it. Mm. And I said to him, look at that anxiety. And you say to that anxiety, bring it on. Bring it on. I'm going to feel this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lean into it like it was a physical thing. And I'm just going to sit here and feel it. And I saw him the next week. And he came up to me. And he said, you know what happened? I did what you said. I got in an MRI machine. And I said, bring it on. And he said, I never even felt it. <laughs> and, and he finished the MRI. So the, the point I'm making is, it is literally our attitude. It is the choice we make. Because what happens when you feel anxiety and you, and you say, I can't feel this. This is too awful. I got to get away from this. You look for every way to escape it. And you, if you can't escape the circumstances that are causing it, you can't escape the feeling. And the fact that you can't suppress it, it only makes it worse because then you get anxious about the fact you can't stop yourself from feeling anxious. And it, that's how it spirals into a panic attack for many people. But if instead you look at that anxiety and say, I can feel this. This is not fun. This is really unpleasant. It's like you know, lifting a really heavy weight over and over and over again so my muscles are burning. And this is just anxiety I don't want to feel. But I'm feeling it in service of a goal, right? Uh, like to be in an MRI, to get an MRI done. Or maybe it's to ask out uh, uh, you know, someone you're attracted to. But the, the idea of being rejected is anxiety provoking. Or to go into a social situation. You know, People have social anxiety and sort of be talkative and, and try to connect to people. And that just fills people with dread, right? And so what ends up happening is you can get rid of that anxiety very easily. Just don't do those things. You won't feel anxious, right? But you want to do those things, right? You want to do them. So the answer really is to look at that anxiety in a spirit of acceptance. And and the more you do this, the more you have practical experience that, hey, that sucked. I hated that, but I did it. I can do it. I actually can withstand this anxiety. I'd rather not. But if I have an important goal... The, the pursuit of which is making me anxious, I can still, I can do it. I have this pathway. I should say here, this is really important. If you have pathological anxiety, as a lot of people do, meaning, you know, a generalized anxiety disorder, mm. while this technique can help to some degree, those people really need true uh, professional attention. I, I'm not 
suggesting this is, you know, people who are paralyzed at home with panic attacks or with generalized anxiety or depression should just say, oh, I don't need my medicine. I don't need therapy or whatever. I'm just going to accept all these feelings and be fine. That, that's that's a, a, a different story. But while I, I still think this technique can help those people, I don't think it's the only thing they necessarily need. I, I want to be very clear about that. But for a regular old garden variety daily anxiety that we all feel when we face anxious, you know, anxiety producing situations, it's an incredibly powerful technique. And it teaches us that we are far stronger than we think we are. And the only way you believe that is by showing yourself that. You can't just tell yourself. You have to show yourself. Mm. Yeah, there's, there's no substitute for that when you, when you get through something tough and you feel yourself on the other side, for sure. Mm-hmm. And another technique that, that you talked about or kind of a series of techniques was you talked about um, how s- sometimes you can look at a situation and see, okay, maybe this is tough, but it could be worse. Or another thing that people can do is what you call benefit finding. Yeah. And how that seems to be more effective. Why is that? Well, so benefit finding relates to coping with loss. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a Buddhist aphorism that everything is transient. And that what that means for people is all the things to which we are attached that bring us joy, we are destined to lose. We are destined to lose every single thing mm. that we currently have that brings us joy, including our own lives. It's, it's uh, when you really think about it, it's a very depressing thought, <laughs> but it is a truth. And so how does one move on from an irrevocable loss? That's, that's the question. And so what most people do is something called uh, sense finding, meaning that they try to make sense of the loss they experience. And there was a study of a group of parents who experienced what are what's considered by most the greatest loss possible, which is the death of a child. And they looked at these parents and they asked them, you know, uh, they, they, they did some measures of, of grief uh, on some traditional psychometric scales and they followed them through time. And then they, they also asked them what, what technique they were using to cope with their loss. And it broke down into these two groups, into people who are trying to make sense of it. They were sense finding. Then people who were not, and people who were trying to, to trying to um, uh, manufacture benefit, right? Benefit, benefit finding, benefit making. And what they found was in in parents who uh, were not looking for meaning, were not looking to make sense uh, of the death of their their. This was a group of parents who lost uh, infants to SIDS, sudden infant death syndrome. Mm-hmm. For those who were not looking for meaning in or an explanation for the death of their child, and therefore not finding it. Uh, and the few parents who were looking for meaning and found an answer that satisfied them, th- they recovered the fastest. Uh, it was the group that was looking for, for sense, an explanation, and not finding it that had the longest acute period of, of bereavement. And so th- my take-home message from that is that you know when you have these these losses that are acts of God, so to speak, meaning that they were. They came out of nowhere. It was not nothing anyone could have done. That you put yourself at risk for prolonged grieving if you try to make sense of it. And the reason probably is because these things cannot be made sense of. We don't have the information. And, and a lot of people end up coming, turning to religion and religious beliefs to help them make sense. But that's a faith thing. And when it really comes down to how it sustains you psychologically, it tends not to work all that well for most people. Hmm. Benefit finding, on the other hand, has been studied and looked at. And what they find is that. This gets the truth that no matter how awful the tragedy, no matter how great the loss, there is always over time benefit to be found. And in this case with these parents, and this was a different 
study, but uh, it turned out that parents who had lost children, when they were challenged to think if there was a benefit to the loss of their of their child and sort of helped to look beyond the, the abhorrence they had and the thought that there could be any benefit to the death of their child, but really looked at it realistically, they often found there was. For example, a significant percentage of them found that they had more courage. They found themselves behaving more courageously. Another, another significant percentage of them found that their relationship with their remaining children had become that much closer. The point being that there is nothing in life that is only good and only bad. Even the most horrific tragedy we can think of, which is often the death of a, of a child, benefit can accrue. Now, none of these parents would have said that the benefit was worth the cost. None of them. Mm. But the benefit was still there. And what we found, and actually, um, you know, I created a, a program at the University of Chicago when I was there uh, after I wrote the book where we actually trained students in using the techniques I write about in the book. And when we, when we had them do this exercise, this particular exercise, and asked them to think of a, a, a loss they had suffered in the past, and it had to be the distant past, uh, because when you're, when you're benefit finding, you're not coming up with a benefit you think is what you are going to get or that you want to get, but actually the benefit you observe you have gotten. So for that uh -huh. to happen, the, the loss has to be a little bit more in the, in the past. And we challenged them to write down about their loss and then, and then at the moment challenged them to write down what did they think that loss benefited them from. Almost everyone in the, in the class to a person would make a statement to say that there was something they wrote down on that list that they would, had never thought of before, that they did not expect to write, but was there for them to write at the moment they were challenged to write it. And they suddenly realized that really was a benefit. Wow. And what the studies show is that when you can identify a benefit in that way and really are convinced, yeah, this, this really, this is a valuable benefit that I care about and it wouldn't have happened if I hadn't suffered this loss. Something about that helps you move on. Mm -hmm. It helped, it helped, it, it's, it's turning the loss into something meaningful and something about that is like a psychological salve to us. Yeah, it's it's interesting how this is this is a, an idea around loss. And another thing that you've you've talked about is how you talk about a, an interesting way to practice gratitude. It's not like mm. anything else I'd ever heard suggested before, because everyone talks about thinking of things you're grateful for in the morning or, or journaling at night. But what is what is your method for gratitude? Right. So studies on journaling uh, and gratitude lists are, are mixed because the problem with, with gratitude is it's, it's very difficult to muster for things that you take for granted in your life. Mm -hmm. And it's psychologically the way we're built. When we have something that we value long enough, it just becomes part of our lives. We, we, we take it for granted. We just, we, it's, it's built into us psychologically. And so sometimes just calling your, your, your renewed attention to those things is enough to make you feel grateful for them. But an, a very clever study was done where uh, sort of like it's the it's a wonderful life idea. Like you really only feel gratitude for something that you lose or are, or are, or are threatened, whose loss you are threatened with, right? If you remember It's a Wonderful Life, George Bailey gets to see what his life, what life would have been like for his friends and family had he never been born. Yeah, it's a great it movie. This, yeah, incredible movie, right? But the, the point is it gives him a sense of appreciation for the life that he lived that he had taken for granted until it was threatened to be taken away from him. So what they did in the study was they had um, they, they were measuring the effectiveness of intervention in producing gratitude and they had a standard way of measuring the gratitude that's reduced. And what they told people to do was to think of something for which they wanted to feel grateful and to then in their minds go back and imagine what their lives would have been had they never gotten it in a vivid, vivid way, meaning subtract it from your life. And so I thought that's a fascinating idea. And sure enough, it was a much more powerful way to evoke gratitude than simply writing down something you're, you're grateful for and trying to summon up that gratitude. And so I tried this with my, so 
the way I've used this is when I get mad at my wife and I think, ah, God, I'm going to divorce her. I can't believe I'm in this marriage. Mm. And I pause in my irrational anger. <laughs> she's done something to anger me. And I say, all right, so let's say, let's say you're going to divorce her, right? Or, or let's say you never met her. I'll, I'll do one of those two things. And I, in a, in a very uh, visual way, I will, I will literally begin to think in every aspect of my life, what it would be like if she were not there. And I think it's the devils in the details here, right? So I imagine waking up without her there. Hmm. I imagine getting my son dressed and ready to go to school without her there. I imagine picking him up without her there, having dinner without her there, going on vacations, having to create vacation without her there. And as I'm going through this and I'm really getting lost in what that image would be like, I'm almost, I mean, I go from being angry at her to being, I'm, I'm like a sobbing fool because <laughs> what it does is it makes me remember all the good things that she is. And, and, and it, it completely banishes the, the angry feeling and gives me perspective and genuinely makes me feel so grateful that I have her because one day I'm going to lose her and I, because she's going to die or I'm going to die and I'm going to have to face that. You know, that's, we say some days if it's never going to happen, but I'm really aware that it's going to happen. And so when I'm in that perspective, when I bother to sort of sit there and mentally subtract her from my life, it brings tremendous feelings of gratitude that she's still here. And I, and I submit, I mean, I do this a lot. I mean, when I'm struggling with anyone, uh, you know, any type of frustration I'm having, or I'm having negative or dark thoughts about anyone who matters to me, um, you know, or someone I have a relationship with, I will pause and I will take some time out and I will mentally subtract them from my life. And, and in order to get, cause it, it just, it's an amazing way of sort of be reminded of what's good about them in the first place and making you grateful for it. And it's pretty hard to be in pain. It's pretty hard to suffer when you are feeling grateful. Wow. Alex, I find that tremendously inspiring. If people want to know more about this and your work, where should they look for you online? Uh, so I have a website. It's uh, www.alexlickerman, all one word, .com. Uh, and if you go to Amazon, if you're interested in reading either of my two books and just put in my name, you'll see them both there. It's The Undefeated Mind is the first one. The Ten Worlds is the second one. They're sort of complementary books. Um, and so if, if you like the first, you'll probably like the second. Uh, and that's, uh, that's where they can go. Awesome. And I'll, I'll put those in the show notes as well. Cool. And Alex, I have, I have just one more question for you. Yeah. My final question is, how can a leader create a culture where the people around them are more resilient? Ah, great question. There is not an easy answer. Uh, I don't think there's one thing that they do. Um, I think that there's been a, a number of books written about leadership. Um, but I will tell you, if the, if the goal of the leader is specifically to help them be resilient, um, uh, the, at the risk of being self-serving, uh, there's many different ways to do it, but I, there, I wrote about this in, uh, in the, the Undefeated Mind, the book I wrote, because the, the very specific techniques that I write about there are science-based, and they can be taught. And in fact, uh, we, we have exported the program that I created at the University of Chicago in my current business. We will teach uh, uh, organizations that want to hire us to do this how to do it, but they can read the book, and they can apply the ideas in the book to their own lives, and they can teach others to do it as well. And there's, you know, as you read, as you know, nine specific techniques that can be creatively applied to different problems. It, it is really a specific thing. It's, it's, uh, it's not just about being a good leader, but a good leader utilizing uh, techniques and processes that really have science behind them that actually work. Mm -hmm. So, so I wish I get, I had a snap, quick, easy answer. There isn't one. It's, it's there's different ways to do it, and that's really what that first book's about. So, yeah. I guess if anyone's interested in that, I would point them to the book. Well, I would too. I, I really enjoyed it, and thank you so much for coming on the show, Alex. I really appreciate you having me. It was a fun discussion. Everybody, that was Dr. Alex Lickerman, author of The Undefeated Mind and The Ten Worlds. 
And if you want to help us get more great guests like this on the podcast, the best thing you can do to help us is to rate and review the show, especially on iTunes. That's a huge help. Thanks a lot, and we'll catch you next time.